This is Sound Lives, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. You're listening to Katra Kush, Flare Stains, composed and performed by Pamela Z from her upcoming album, A Secret Code, which will be released in June on NUMA Records. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and today I'm having a conversation with Pamela Z about creating and performing during the pandemic, her transition from being a singer-songwriter to an experimental composer, the constant changes in audio technology, her love for old telephones, and many, many other topics. I love those earrings. They look like things that turn 33 players into 45 players, the little thing. That That's exactly what they are. They are 45 <laughs> adapters. And yeah. I simply drilled a hole and put an ear wire in them. Love it. So Love it. They are from <laughs> they are from back in the day. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to to chat. I know you're super, super busy, but I think this is a great time for us to talk because even though things have been so horrible all over the world for so many people, you know, aside from the, you know, the sickness and the deaths and all of that, but the music community has just really suffered from this. But in this strange, weird new world we're in, you seem to be thriving. I've got a lot going on, but it is, it's been stressful because I'm kind of bizarrely overcommitted. Uh, so I'm just kind of working nonstop, uh, trying to complete commissioned works and so on. And it's been a very strange time. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly something about certain recent works of yours that definitely speak to this moment. But there's something about your process that works in an era where, you know, you can't create sound with like a ton of people gathered together to make that sound. You've developed this body of work over the course of decades that really can work in this environment as well. It's, it's adaptable. For the most part, I've been a solo artist for a long time. So the idea of making things on my own is not so foreign, but I have been receiving numerous commissions over the years and the current situation has certainly put a different twist on the big deadline that I'm, I have many going on right now, but the one that's like the most imminently um, looming is um, I'm making a piece for Volti, the chamber chorus. The whole piece is being designed around the fact that it has to all be done over Zoom. I feel like the time that we're living through right now is turning us all into filmmakers. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like I'm making a piece and I'm designing the whole piece around sort of visual phenomena. You know, it's like every movement of the piece is a little bit different, but each one is being composed um, and sort of designed in a way that because it's intended to be presented visually, that people will be experiencing this on a screen. And so there's a lot of influence from that going into the actual structure of the composition. 
<laughs> One of the things that's made your music so exciting is that even though it's sound, there's always a visual element to it. I think you have always been aware that, you know, if you're dealing with an audience that's there, you want to give them something great to hear, but you also want to give them something great to see. I think that that is really based in just the way that I work or say, I guess, my strengths as an artist, because I'm very much in favor of work that's purely sonic. I have no, um, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't like going to those electronic music concerts because it's just a bunch of guys sitting behind gear, turning knobs, and I want to see something. I don't need to see something for every work because I'm a very strong supporter of work that is purely oral. But just as an artist myself, my strengths as an artist lie partially in the performative aspects of the work. And so for me... It's natural to want to make things that do have a strong visual component because sometimes that visual component is simply me. It's just my presence on the stage, uh, my manipulation of things that are happening. Um, and other times it's also includes visual Im image that I have created that's projected and that surrounds me or that I'm sort of immersed in. There's a wide range of, of ways that the visual can work, but just in terms of my own work, that is kind of an important component, I think. Although I, I find it refreshing at times to work on something that I know is going to be purely sonic as well. You talk, you know, about, you know, people not wanting to see guys you know turn a bunch of knobs or press a key on their laptop i mean that's a hell of a lot less interesting to look at than you moving your hands around and it triggering all these amazing sounds that's actually visually compelling right but what i would say about that is we need to remember that there are different kinds of work it has a lot to do with expectations if you're going to see something that is billed as a concert or a performance, these days people's expectations get raised for expecting to see things as well as hear things. For example, I love um, the San Francisco Tape Music Center has an annual tape music concert. And everyone who buys a ticket for that knows that they are not going to look at stuff. They're going to sit in a room full of people listening to things. As long as you're, those are your expectations, then that shouldn't be disappointing. It should sometimes sonic information can be augmented by the fact that there isn't a visual distraction. So I love going to the San Francisco Tape Music Center's annual festival and sitting in a darkened room. You, you walk in, it's the cinema for the ear, as they say. You walk in, everybody sits down in their seats and then the lights go down and they stay down and no lights come up. <laughs> you know, the only light you see is if you happen to look behind you or beside you or in front of you at the console and in the middle of the room is usually the mixing desk and there's sometimes the composer is seated there and is manipulating the way the sound is projected into the room. Other than that, there's nothing to see. And I think that there's value in that I think there's room in the in the world for a wide spectrum of ways of working. One of my least favorite things is to see somebody whose real strength is sonic and who is not a performer. 
making the awkward effort to make their performance visual just because they think that's expected. Getting back to this current moment, this current mm-hmm. moment where everybody's doing concerts on Zoom, you have to yes. create a visual. In a way, it's sort of weird. You would think that this would be a time for us to return to maybe a new golden age of radio. Being trapped in front of our screens, in a way, it's kind of awful. To that point, I have made a couple of pieces recently that are sound works. And they were intended to be listened to on headphones and they're intended to not be sitting in front of your screen when you're experiencing those. One of them is a piece called Times Cubed, which I made for the Prototype Festival for New York. And it's about Times Square. And it gives you the the option to actually take your headphones and a device to Times Square if you're in New York and walk around in Times Square while listening to the piece or to be sitting in the comfort of your home in a very comfortable chair, hopefully away from your computer screen and just listen on very good stereo headphones. And I've actually been telling people that if they do have the chance to go and listen to the piece in Times Square, that I also encourage them to have another listen to it, not in Times Square, because I do think there are some subtleties in the sound piece itself that they will probably miss if they're listening to it in midtown Manhattan, you know? <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, I listened to it and I loved listening to it as audio only. Um, mm-hmm. I'm afraid to go to Times Square. <laughs> I you don't know, blame I, I, you. And then I thought maybe I could rig Google Earth to like be in the background <laughs> and I could do it a simulacrum that way, but then I'm in front of my screen. So it defeats the purpose. When we first started working on it, the idea was that it was going to be a sound walk. As I got deeper into making the piece, and also I think at the time that that they commissioned me to do this, I don't think it was 100% clear yet that things wouldn't be opened up again. But as I was working on the piece, I very quickly became attached to a lot of the subtleties in the piece. And I started actually secretly wishing that people would actually listen to it not walking around Times Square, at least for one of the hearings. If you are listening to it in that environment, I sort of like to think that there might be some confusion around like which of the sounds are coming from the piece and which of the sounds are coming from actually around me. And also just the fact of seeing what's being talked about while it's being talked about and being amidst it. So there's that's the layer that I think is compelling, but I don't think it's at all necessary. And as a matter of fact, my preference is that people at least hear in one one of their listenings happens without that added distraction of being somewhere. I actually tested it myself. I couldn't be in, in New York. So I just took a walk in San Francisco and listened to it while I was out in the street and while there was traffic and moments where I had to like cross the street because unmasked people were <laughs> were gathered on a corner, or, you know, um, and and there were you know sirens of emergency vehicles going by, and what I found was I definitely felt like I missed a lot of what was in the piece by the distractions of having to actually be alert to my surroundings for one thing, and then having those sounds on top of it. And the decibel level of things in outdoors, traffic and and such is much greater than we think it is. Because I thought I had it turned up pretty loud in my earphones. And as soon as a car would go by, it would cover 
the sound I was hearing. It's probably good. So that way you don't get run over while you're, you're listening. Exactly. You, you know? need those auditory si- signals when you're out there in the wild. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it definitely has gotten kind of wild out there. You, you sort of predicted where I wanted to go with this with Times Cubed. Theoretically, this piece could be taken on a walk in any city anywhere, right? Yeah, sure. Because it's giving you a a way to expand your imagination. I like to think that it cues people into the thought of expanding their imagination to past, present, and future of whatever place they're in. Well, talking about past, present, and future, I want to go all the way into the past. I chanced upon these wonderful tracks of the Cube Chicks. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you listen to Bald Boyfriend? Of course, yes, <laughs> fabulous. And, <laughs> do you know? Um, do you know about our little? <laughs> do you know about our little? Uh, our our little um, rock video, our Bald Boyfriend rock video. I saw it. it you was, saw it. <laughs> it's, it's such talk about time portal. You know, it's like totally <laughs> back in the early nineties, and you know, like there it is, the, yeah. the bit with Bill Clinton and <laughs> kind of shaped. <laughs> it was it was really really fun um but i wonder you know that's the earliest music of yours i know so i'm very curious about you know very early on before you even got to san francisco you were well, a songwriter I'm not likely to share anything from with you from that period <laughs> but i will share with you this in the mid 80s i out my first voice and electronics release it was a cassette only release called echolocation and an exciting little bit of news is that there's a label that wants to reissue it it'll probably come out late this year or early next year so echolocation is coming back but i have a release called a secret code of more recent works that's coming out on NUMA probably in June. So there'll be this nice thing of like fairly new stuff. And then shortly after that, very old stuff being released. (laughs) So, so Philip Blackburn isn't putting echolocation out on cassette. Philip is not putting echolocation out on another label called. So it's two, it's two labels. It's two different labels. Another uh, label called Frim to Spend. Strange name. I don't know the history of why their label's called that. They like to reissue things from that period that's how that came about and they are not putting it out on cassette but they are putting it out on vinyl yes Yes. (laughs) which is really fun and then philip putting out my new record on cd and of course all of the other platforms right any chance (laughs) that the the cube chicks material will ever surface on a on an album Oh, who knows? I mean, we've talked off and on about, you know, getting together and doing something. And that never seems to fully happen. Like two years ago, we had a a scheduled event and that ad ended up being canceled because of some crazy thing. It wasn't COVID because it was before that. But um, the three of us are still often together these days on Zoom, just hanging and sharing what's going on with each other. And we always like make noises about, oh, we should do something. But I don't know if there's enough Cube Chicks, existing Cube Chicks material for an entire record, but maybe there is for like an EP or something. We'll see. There are some Cube Chicks releases. One was, I think, on 
Elise Carmani's Ishtar label that I think that one of our songs, but I don't remember which one. I think it might have been If You Want To. And, you know, we have some other things. So, yeah, that would be fun. I mean, that would be maybe that would be a, a project for for Freedom Disband. We'll see. <laughs> you just sold one. So <laughs> you just sold several, actually. Everybody who's going to listen to this you, is going to want one so so we were talking about cube chicks and the secret stuff from before that that you would never share (laughs) i learned to play guitar when i was in elementary school and by the time i was in junior high i was writing songs and recording them on my little cassette deck which my father had bought us these you know craig cassette decks this was a newfangled technology. So I was singing songs and writing songs from the time that I was a pretty young kid. By the time I was in high school, I was a full-blown singer-songwriter. I learned massive numbers of Joni Mitchell songs. She was probably my biggest influence at that period of my life. You know, all these other people that were sort of folk rock, you know, world. By the time I got to college, I was actually a professional musician. I was starting to play in clubs and coffee houses and things like that. And so by night I was playing in coffee houses and for really low artist fees or tips. And by day I was singing opera arias and art song in music school. When I got out of music school, when I graduated, after a brief, let's say one year stint of trying to like teach music, in the public schools, out of a feeling of obligation that that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, I realized very quickly that no, 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 this is not what I'm supposed to do. And I just dropped that. And also, I don't know what teachers make now, but they were paid so poorly in those days that I was making more money busking than I was making as a salary for being a teacher. And so I stopped teaching after like a year and I just began to play music for a living. So for that period of time, it's a handful of years, I was just gigging and just driving all around the Colorado, Denver metro area, and also to like further flung ski resorts and all of this stuff. And the gigs would consist of me playing cover tunes. Originally, they were mostly like by Joni Mitchell, Beatles, a lot of folk rock and folk artists, you know, Dylan and leftover things from Malvina Reynolds and, all, you know, just, you know, all the, all the sort of hippie music, you know, basically. <laughs> so it was half that and half songs I was writing, but something happened to me come the early 80s. I had been doing radio. I had a radio program on the local public station in Boulder, uh, KGNU. I had a show called the Tuesday Afternoon Sound Alternative. And it was like a free form radio show. And I would play anything I wanted to. I usually chose short pieces so that I could segue from one to another and play. I liked really strange segues. Like I like to move from Verez to the Ramones to the roaches, to Pauline Oliveras. <laughs> it was like, you know, I just was like wow. all over the map. It was during that period where I had this awakening to new music and experimental music. And I also was p- starting to play with tape recorders and little Casio 
synthesize, you know, just playing with new things. And I had this dilemma where I suddenly woke up one day and realized that the music I was playing for a living did not resemble what was on my turntable because I was listening to Ned Rothenberg and I was listening to, you know, Alvin Lucier. And then I was going and playing like these Joni Mitchell songs in clubs. And so I was sort of like, hmm. and so I had this real turnaround and I heard someone use a digital delay in concert. That person was Jaco Pastorius and he did this duet with himself all the other members of weather report left the stage and he sat there alone with a stomp box and his bass and he did this whole piece where he improvised he played some riffs and made loops and improvised over the top of it i mean nowadays you can't throw a rock without hitting a looper musician you know <laughs> um, but in those days that was not done it was i'd never seen it done and when it was done no one understood how it was being done it was like what is happening and so i got really excited and i went to a music store the next day and i said this guy had a thing and he would play and then it comes back and, and and what was that and the guy said oh that's a digital delay I said, I'll take one. <laughs> and, so, and that literally was the day that I feel like I found my voice as an artist. But he, the guy advised me, you don't want what Jocko had. It was like a stop box. They have like really low frequency. Sampling rate is really low and it's not going to sound good on your voice. So he sold me a rack mountable digital delay. And I took that home and I never went to bed that night. I just was like, oh my God. So I would say within a year of that happening, my entire world changed musically. And I ended up picking up and moving to San Francisco because I needed to start over and I needed to be in a community that was going to be supportive of me doing experimentation. And I was, <laughs> I, I had all these gigs booked that uh, with people who were like, what are you doing? You have such a pretty voice. Why do you want to do weird things? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, that was the reader's digest version of the history of how it moved. But when I got to the Bay area, I just literally jettisoned everything I used to do. And I wrote completely new works, a set of works and had a repertoire of pieces for voice and digital delay. I think for a little while, I had a couple of pieces that still had the guitar involved, but they were sort of these weird hybrid kind of looping parts, but I was also playing the guitar and that maybe lasted for a couple of years. And after that, I woke up one day and realized, you know, I haven't touched the guitar in a long time. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I guess the one piece that sort of lets us in on your earlier life is Aria Miste where you're combining all of these opera arias? Oh, oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> I used to have this avant chamber series called the room series, which used to happen um, in this performance gallery that was on the first floor of the building I live in. That is not happening anymore. Um, the last room series concert I did was before I left for Rome in summer of 2019. But one of those room series concerts that I think I made that little granulated opera aria piece. <laughs> Now, I'm curious about when things 
transitioned in terms of your sound world to go beyond just the musical components and to enter the realms of sound installation and performance art and when those elements became key to the work? It was a gradual progression, I would say. When I see something that it, that excites me, it makes me want to delve into that world somewhat. And so I feel like I spend just as much time going to visual art museums and galleries as I do going to concerts, because I just love the whole spectrum of the arts. And I find it difficult to put fences up between them. So for me, they all kind of bleed together in terms of my appreciation of them. And so then that leads to my also my practice. But I would say that I think maybe my first forays into doing kind of things where I had one toe in the visual arts world were when I was asked by a gallery or two to submit sound works for exhibitions, which I think maybe even what predates that is that uh, Helen Thorrington and, and Regina Baia used to do this series called New American Radio. They would commission artists to make half hour sound works and then they would air those on their program, which was then picked up by various public radio entities. So I think the earliest sort of sound work of that variety that I did was was sort of radio pieces, pieces that were sound pieces intended to be listened to on radio. I would say that it was probably late 80s, early 90s or something when Helen was doing that series and when I had some pieces in it. I began work on a piece in the mid 90s called Parts of Speech. And that was sort of my first large scale multimedia performance work that was not just a concert of me with voice and electronics. As a sort of um, artifact of that piece, I, I ended up also making these little sound installations that were um, like one of the pieces was these little cloth bound grammars. There was a French one and a, a Spanish one and I think an, an English one. And I can't remember, there were four. And I mounted speakers on them. The person would stand in the middle and there would be like all sides. So it was like a little multi-channel piece. And then it just had these parts of speech. And then as I sort of went along, I think that started to happen a little bit with different works that I made where I would create a sound installation or like a fixed media kind of component of something that was sort of related to a larger work that was a performance work. The piece of yours that I am just totally floored by, Baggage Allowance. Ah, yes. And that was <laughs> that yeah. was the crazy, crazy, over <laughs> overambitious thing that I did. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so fascinating on so many levels, visually, sonically, conceptually. And what's wonderful about it is it's like it's so otherworldly, but I think it's something that most of us can relate to mm -hmm. because we all have this anxiety, or at least we did before March of 2020, <laughs> where we traveled and we're like, you know. Now we miss the TSA, our old friends. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> I still remember, you know, opening up a suitcase coming back, mm -hmm. coming back from Germany, and it was, it was filled with CDs, and they were so perplexed. You know, why would somebody have so many recordings? And like, are you selling these? And I said, well, look, everyone's different. 
They're like, you have that many? It's like, <laughs> it's just, it's like oh. What's like, wrong Next. with you? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, have a, I have a really good TSA story about the cube chicks. We did this piece called Circle of Bone. And it was a big sort of performance work. And at one point we were hired by um, the University of Omaha to come and have a residency with their dance department because Lee, who is the cute chick that's more the mover of, of, of the three of us, um, she was the one who generally choreographed the pieces. It was basically built around her working with their dancers at this university. So we expanded the piece to include all these dancers from their dance department. And I think maybe we even had some chorus members, but we did like a little residency and we put on a version of Circle of Bone in Omaha at this university. So when we were going through the airport and we had one of the props was a big trunk, kind of like one of the one of the baggage lounge trunks, but this is predates baggage allowance by quite a few years. And this trunk was completely filled with bones because there's this scene in the piece where Lee just drags like Buto style, drags this trunk out onto the stage and then dumps it. And it's this big mountain of bones. And, you know, I think they were like cow bones. I don't know where we got the bones, but they were mostly cow bones. But we tried to choose like femurs and things like that, that would look you know, like they could be her ancestors' bones. Um, so we put this trunk on the x-ray thing. Meanwhile, this person had been giving us a really hard time because one of us had a shaved head, one of us had a mohawk and was black, and one of us, you know, had blonde, spiky, punky hair, and we just were dressed, you know, like we dress. And they were just like giving us a hard time from the beginning. Like they were doing things like, telling us we had too many carry-ons. They were counting our purses as bad. You know, they were doing all these things to make it as hard for us as possible. And then we put this trunk on the belt and it went through. And when they saw the x-ray of the trunk, all of a sudden they were just like, they just wanted us out of there. They were just like, okay, you can go, uh, you know, take your things, move along. You know, they were, just like, they were so frightened. They did not want to mess with us. <laughs> oh, I love it. I didn't think that was where that was going to go. Was, wow. <laughs> ah, their eyes just got so big. And then they were just like, hmm, just, Move right along. We don't want to stand in your way. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh. So was that in the back of your head when you were creating this piece? When I was creating baggage allowance? Actually, I think in the whole baggage allowance piece, there is a section of the piece where I actually think I tell a little bit of that story. I think there's a piece where I have multiple little stories that are layered. I mean, a lot of the times I use text. And so it may have been just triggered as a text file or something, but that story did make its way in some form into that piece. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, you know, the whole idea of the installation piece that's you inside mm -hmm. the luggage is this sort of, you know, the fear, you know, what were those bones? Was that <laughs> or or, that, or more or more specifically, going. who? <laughs> 
you're right. <laughs> the last TSA agent who gave us yeah, exactly, who gave us a hard time is now in the truck. <laughs> so, just as a little warning to you, <laughs> be nice so to that us. piece. Yeah, that piece exists. There's some gorgeous music in there, and, and, and which I think would really even work independently. Of, you know, I wish it was on a CD or a DVD or a CD-ROM. Or, you know, at some point you had a website where it was all done for the web, but it was done in Flash. And of course, the great powers that be of the internet killed Flash. So mm -hmm. now we can't see that website. Yeah. And so I'm actually kind of in conversation with somebody who might know how to work with the current language that works on the web to sort of translate some of those parts of that piece. It's sad because it was an interactive piece. Like there was a little weeping steamer trunk page and you could take your mouse and you could open the drawers of the, of the steamer trunk and hear the sonic things that would happen and see images in the lid of the trunk. And there was other sections where you could mouse over these different suitcases and each one of them would pop something out. And so all of that has to get somehow rebuilt in some language that works in HTML5 or what I don't know what it is now that they have, but I've been talking to somebody who has a little bit of knowledge about that and might be able to help me rebuild it at some point, but I don't know when I'm going to find the time. Two different things that it leads me to ponder. One is you're imagining new possibilities of sound and new ways of making the sound, but you're not an engineer yourself. So how do you translate that to somebody to get them to do the instrument you want? You're like, I want an instrument where I could make the sound of a typewriter by doing this, and it's a typewriter. Like, how did you explain that to somebody to get them to create something that allowed you to do something like that in performance? I think what you're referring to is uh, people who've built like these gesture controllers that I use. So these gesture controllers are generating information that it essentially ends up as MIDI. And so you could do that with this. You know, I could press this key and it sends a MIDI note and I could get a typewriter sample. So it's not like I need somebody to specifically make me something that will allow me to make a typewriter sound. I just need them to make me something that will allow me to make notes by, by doing gestures or control whatever parameters I'm controlling. And I've been very lucky because I am surrounded by really smart inventive people, but specifically the person who's done the most work for me like that is a composer named Donald Swearingen. He works with me on figuring out what, what I want my gesture controllers to do, but he also uses these things himself. So he has an understanding. It's not like I'm bringing in some sort of a software or hardware engineer who's not even in the arts and has to like understand that it's going to have to get translated to MIDI and it's going to have to, you know, this is somebody who has a really full understanding of all of that from the beginning. And so it's not so difficult to translate what my needs and wants in that regard would be. If that makes any sense. It totally makes sense. No, and it's great. It works. It's exciting. But the other part of it, which is the scary part, the archival part, you know, I'm not <sighs> thinking about this, that, you know, with flash gone and this, this incredible thing that was built, that's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, anytime you're dealing with technology, it's always changing. A piece that you did with a certain technology 15 years ago, you know, will it work 10 years in the future? 
that's the thing that's really tricky. And I think we've all come to realize that the best we can do is just to document the work as it happens knowing that maybe in the future it can't be performed in the same ways. My computer that has Max MSP, which is the software that I use for most of my live sound needs, that computer, I've been shielding it from updates because, and it's running pretty old operating system and it's running kind of a pretty old version of Max because every time you update the software, things break that you then have to fix and figure out how to get them to work again. And so that's a problem that's just going to persist. I don't see that problem going away because there are a lot of people in the world who all they care about is changing things. They don't get attached to, to something. They really like think everything is, oh, so yesterday, so six months ago. That is not compatible in a way with becoming virtuosic on anything building an instrument that you can become virtuosic on without having to pause every few minutes to update it and then change all of the things that no longer work with the update, you know, and blah, 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 blah. I always jokingly say, wouldn't it be weird if you were like a violinist or a cellist or something? And every six months, somebody would show up at your house and take your cello away from you and say, here, this is the new cello and you need to learn to play this one. And by the way, we've made the fretboard a little narrower because, uh, you know, you don't need all that extra space. (laughs) (laughs) That's a perfect segue, because, of course, the one way to avoid all of that is to write for string quartet, which is also (laughs) done. Yeah. You know, the tricky thing about that is I tend to write these pieces for chamber ensembles that also include some kind of electronics element, even if it's just a a fixed media uh, or a tape part, as we still like to call it. I made a piece for the Bang on a Can All-Stars and I composed it in 98. It was for their ensemble which has been stable all these years in terms of the instrumentation, even though the members have come in and out. So it was for their ensemble, plus my voice in electronics, plus some sampled sounds that were to be triggered by the pianist. So that person also needs to have a keyboard there, like a MIDI keyboard, and some sampled sounds that are to be triggered by me using my gesture control instruments. In 98, I would say I was still using a rack full of hardware digital delays instead of a MacBook Pro, or at that time it would have been a PowerBook or whatever. (laughs) I mean, I think they were just starting to have the laptops, you know, but I was using like a six space rack full of digital delays and multi-effects units and sampler and stuff. So I was doing processing of my voice with hardware digital delays. There was no Max MSP involved in the picture yet. I was using a Roland sampler for this playback of the samples that I was triggering. And the controller I was using was an instrument called the body synth, which was my first gesture control instrument that used electrode sensors on my arms and shoulder, my leg. I had these sensors that were, I could just use the effort from my muscles to send MIDI messages. The pianist of a Bang on a Can, which was Lisa Moore at that time, was triggering the samples using a MIDI keyboard and probably some sampler that Jody Elf uh, had loaned 
them for that purpose or something. Well, then I played that piece with them for for a couple of years. They did it again. They did it in San Francisco. They did it in we went to Germany, I think, and played it. And we did it at a benefit in Manhattan and another venue. And then I think we even came to San Francisco and performed it with uh, on the Other Wines Festival one year. And then many years went by, like I would say at least a decade more or more. And then Evan Zaporin, who was now on the faculty at MIT, asked me to come and play it with a student ensemble there. So by this time, now all the delay part was in Max MSP. I was doing it in Max. I was using a Max sampler for the sounds. And I think probably I was still using the body synth maybe at that point for triggering my samples. But I gave just sound files to the keyboard player and the keyboard player probably loaded them onto a computer and was triggering them that way. And then... Bayana Khan asked me a few years ago to play the piece with them again at Merkin Hall or something for like an anniversary of the People's Commissioning Fund, which is what that piece, what was the original commission for that piece. I was using completely different gesture controllers. One of the ones that Donald built me to play the sounds of the Schmetterling's wings and the keyboard player again was just receiving a set of sound files. And, you know, I think their sound engineer just put them into a bank of samples on a computer or, you know, something like that. But it was really interesting how that piece sort of walked its way through all these different stages of changes in, in software and hardware, but it was essentially the same piece each time. The piece you did for the Del Sol Strict Quartet. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about that is talk about technology changing. Mm -hmm. Telephones have changed, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you have... You know, you have the cell phone go off. The cellist has to take the cell phone call. But then there's this old rotary dial phone that's hanging <laughs> out there as well. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> yeah. As you can see by my earrings here, <laughs> I sort of enjoy this old school technology. And I, I kind of collect them. And I like, I have like three rotary phones in this room. And one of them still rings when my phone rings. Like I have it hooked up to the phone line. Even though the phone line is now a voice over internet protocol phone, I can still take a modular jack out of the back of that and go to this like rotary phone and it will ring the phone and you can answer it. And so I, and I have that and I have these other two rotary phones over here. I have typewriters around here that I love. And um, I kind of love these devices. For me, it was really fun to, and also because the piece is really about the ways in which our attention is really challenged these days with these little devices that we carry around in our pockets and the computer itself, your laptop or desktop, like making little beeps and bloops. And you're not sure if it's like a Facebook messenger uh, message coming in, or is that an email coming in or is somebody texting me or like, what is that little ding I just heard, you know? So there's all of that. And I just thought it was fun to kind of drag it back to the days when the only distraction of that nature was this actual bell ringing when somebody would call you and this little physical clapper would actually go and ring that bell towards the beginning of the piece, the first sort of distraction that comes in is a ringing phone 
but the ringing phone is being given to us by this ghost of a phone of our past. And I don't know, there's something to me very poetic about that. And also just very poetic about the fact that, that there's literally two metal bells and an electrical signal is being sent to cause a little clapper to physically move and ring those two bells. That's how your phone rang. Now your phone rings and it plays a sound file that's part of a pop tune that's been squashed to MP3 compression. There's something really interesting to me about that. Well, the other thing that struck me about it was you made me really hear how musical that old phone ringing is. It's a really beautiful musical sound. Yeah, it is. It's very specific pitches. Somehow they managed to have it be pretty universal, like every phone from a certain period has those same two bells and they're tuned to the same pitches. It's instantly recognizable who's <laughs> our age <laughs> can remember. <laughs> Who can remember those phones? You know, whereas nowadays anything could sound like anything. It used to be that a phone had a very particular sound and that was the sound. But it was fun to compose. Like essentially I wrote those bell tones into the string parts and they're, they're playing them. And I'll tell you something funny. This is me like not being experienced enough on some of the instruments that I'm writing for it goes so it goes even faster than that in reality but if you slow it down it's like that's the phone ringing but it just goes really fast so it just sounds like you know so i was writing that in the strings and i had them going and i wrote it as pizzicato and so when i delivered the score to them after their first rehearsal they were kind of like um these are a little fast for pizzicato <laughs> is there any way we could bow them and i was like oh well i guess you'll have to wow. <laughs> so i had to rewrite it for bow you know i had to put arco in there when it was used to say pits because <laughs> wow. i i mean i used to play the viola when i was a kid but i haven't played in so long i don't really have my viola in good condition and tuned and at the ready so that when i make a decision like that, I can pick it up and say, is that even playable? You know? So. <laughs> so a final area, you know, one, one would hope we're somehow going to get out of this weird, like now more than a year long purgatory <laughs> of zoom and everything. And you're writing all of these pieces. You're, you're doing pieces for zoom. What kind of lives do those pieces have afterwards? Like the Volti piece, is that going to be something that, can be done live in the future. When I first was given this assignment by them, my idea was I'm going to write a piece that can be done that is good on Zoom, but that later when they're playing in public, they can still perform it. At some point I had to just abandon that because, you know, you're under pressure and you've got to get something made. So right now I'm just doing all I can to get the piece made. And then in the end, I'll have to come back and pick up the pieces and say, okay, how much of this actually would work if it wasn't a matrix of 16 
voices, you know, in squares. And if I couldn't present these very clear visual things in the video, and I think there will be a good part of it that will work. For example, <laughs> there's, I'm going to give away a, like, a, this is like an early secret. You're, I'm letting you in on a secret right now. One of the movements of the piece involves a fugue, which is almost conventionally composed SATB arrangement, except the score looks like it was printed on an inkjet printer that accidentally got water spilled on it. And so there's places in the score where it's it's very clear what they're supposed to be singing. And then suddenly their notes are obscured by these blobs of ink bleeding on the page. And they are expected to interpret those bleeding things as sounds. And so all through the piece, it starts out sparsely doing it. And then by the end of the movement, it's just like half the time they're, you know, out going away from the notes and trying to sing these, these ink blots. So when I present that piece, that movement, which, which I, at this point, I'm considering it as the final movement of the piece in the zoom, the, the, you'll have the little matrix of all of their singing of their faces, but I will also display the score with that somehow. But I want the people who are listening to it to see why they're going off the rails. But this is a really normal piece. Like it's just, you know, they could stand there as a choir and they could perform this piece, no problem. But it might be nice to assume that when it's done in a live concert, that you get a projection of the score. There are other parts of the piece where I'm really giving them fragments to do, and then I'm constructing those. And then they have to kind of learn. There's a lot of funny different twists and turns to how different movements of this are being done and how much of that is going to be normal and doable in a live setting or even make sense in a live setting is unclear. But I'd like to hope that it'll have a life in the live performance realm. But whether it does or not, as you know, nothing dies on the internet. Well, except Flash. Nothing. <laughs> Everything is still there to haunt you. Even after we're back in venues and playing live again, people will probably still be able to go to YouTube or, or Vimeo or somewhere and pull up this virtual performance. <laughs> I, I can't wait to be able to pull it up. When, when is it going to be out there? The 24th of April is the premiere. I'll make sure you get an inv invitation. This concludes our episode of Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and our guest today was Pamela Z. Discover more adventurous music and the people who create it on New Music Box. You're listening to Despangled, composed and performed by Pamela Z from her upcoming album, A Secret Code, which will be released in June on NUMA Records. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.